Hi everyone, I'm Patrick Johnson. And I'm Chante Westmoreland. And this is Do You Even Have a Tech Degree? Hello and thanks for joining us. My name is Chante Westmoreland and today we are going to be speaking with Professor Molly Van Howling, who is a professor of law as well as an associate dean here at Berkeley Law School. Uh, she is a co-director of the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology, who joined Bolt faculty in 2005. Uh, so Professor Van Howling is going to start off by telling us about her background, and then we're going to move into the topic of one of her more recent law review articles entitled Authors versus Owners. Uh, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Professor Van Howling's parents met while attending graduate school in Ann Arbor. Uh, both of them went into educational fields. Her father was the director of vocational education for Ann Arbor Public School System, whereas her mom became a high school guidance counselor. So growing up, they were very committed to education and in particular to vocational education mm -hmm. and thinking about practical skills. And um, I think that is part of what contributed to my ending up in law school as opposed to other things I toyed with, like getting a PhD in art history or really wanted to become a marine biologist, but my mom <laughs> did some research and discovered there weren't so many jobs available for marine biologists. So. In Ann Arbor or anywhere? Well, maybe in particular in Ann Arbor, but anywhere, I think. In between undergrad and law school, Professor Van Helling went off to D.C. to see if she could find a job working on health care policy. But lots of people wanted jobs in D.C., and there's lots of competition. And what I ended up doing was not healthcare policy, but for most of the year after law school, I worked in the Commerce Department on technology policy. Okay. And in particular, policy related to what we then called the Information Infrastructure Task Force. Mm -hmm. We were talking about the Internet, <laughs> and we knew about the Internet, but it was a little less clear then that the internet would be the network that would be ubiquitous in all of our lives. Um, but we were thinking about what the network of networks might be used for, how government and law might relate to it. Mm -hmm. And I found that I, although I didn't have a technology background and didn't think that technology policy was what I was interested in, mm -hmm. there was lots of overlap with the healthcare policy that I had learned about, issues of universal access to networks in the home and in schools right. and so forth. Right. That was part of technology policy, too. So I liked it. And then when I went to law school um, at Harvard Law School the next year, it was launching its activities in the area mm -hmm. of internet policy in particular. Great timing. Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society was being launched during this time. And so that was the academic community that I found myself mm -hmm. gravitating towards. Yeah. And so what brought you to Berkeley? How did you find your way to us? So I first came to California the year after I graduated from law school. I parlayed my connections at the Berkman Center into my first post-law school job, which was being one of the first staff members at ICANN, mm -hmm. which is the nonprofit that oversees the internet domain name system. Okay. I moved back to Boston the following year to clerk for Judge Boudin on the First Circuit. Mm -hmm. And uh, then the year after that, after clerking for Judge Boudin, I clerked for David Souter on the Supreme Court, so I spent a year in DC. Mm -hmm and then had an opportunity to come back to California to be the first staff member for Creative Commons, which was at the time a brand new nonprofit organization that was founded to 
bring some of the spirit of the open source software movement to other kinds of creative copyrightable work. Interesting. Okay. Um, and recognizing that in the age of the internet, especially, lots of people create and want to share their creations not to sell copies of them or without mm -hmm. any hope that they would sell copies of them, mm -hmm. but instead because they want to spread their message and reach their audience and maybe make a career out of other things like mm -hmm. selling concert tickets and so forth. Um, and surprisingly, the current copyright system doesn't make it super easy to do that, mm -hmm. to participate in a creative exchange without copyright because although copyright used to be, federal copyright used to be what we might call an opt-in system. Mm -hmm. If you didn't comply with various statutory formalities, your work would automatically go into the public domain. Mm -hmm. Now we have a system where everything is automatically protected as right. opposed to going by default into the public domain, which seems like an ironic misfit to the current situation where so many right. people create not because of copyright. So. Mm -hmm. All of that is the backstory to Creative Commons, yeah. which distributes licensed text that makes it easy for people to attach a license to a work and just announce to everyone the terms on which they can use it. And that was the year when my husband was finishing his PhD in political science. He was going on the market, as we say, looking for an academic job. Okay. And I, at that point, had had enough exposure to this nice academic community mm -hmm. at Harvard, mm -hmm. to my mentors there, um, to think that being a legal academic would be a career that I would enjoy. And my husband and I thought it would be most plausible that we would get jobs in the same place if mm -hmm. we tried to do that simultaneously, although that is a, a stressful and difficult thing to do. Oh, Professor Van Howling and her husband both got jobs in their respective fields at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Where we had met, in fact, in high school. I didn't mention that. Very important yes. part of my <laughs> development. And um, so it was hard to leave California, but those were dream jobs for us. Mm -hmm. And so we were reunited with our families back in Ann Arbor yeah. um, and loved living there and loved being on the faculty there. But a couple of years later, had the opportunity to come back to California and join the faculty at Berkeley. And it was hard then to decide to leave our families uh, but they like to visit us yes, here in California, exactly. yes, so sure. I think it's, uh, <laughs> it was the right decision. Well, um, so now you are here. What is your what is your position here at Bold? I started here as an assistant professor, so a professor without tenure. I'd just been teaching for a couple years at Michigan, mm -hmm. and I'm now a full professor with tenure and associate dean for the JD curriculum. Mm -hmm. So I work with assistant dean Susan Whitman on scheduling our classes, mm -hmm. hearing from students about what we need to have more of in our curriculum, talking to my colleagues who are experts in business law, technology law, social justice, and so forth, to think about what classes we might expand. So in addition to that, and of course being a professor and actually teaching classes, you're also currently working on the restatement of copyright. Can you talk a little, a little bit about that process? Sure. So listeners might be familiar with various restatements of law, mm -hmm. which are promulgated by the American Law mm -hmm. Institute. And their goal is to synthesize and clarify the law. And I think we're all probably most familiar with them from classic common law areas like torts, for mm -hmm. example. So there's a restatement of torts that tries to give judges in particular, but also practitioners and others, a sense of 
what the law is, even though, of course, the law of torts is the common a mix of the common law and statutory law of mm -hmm. 50 states. Mm -hmm. And yet it's useful to have something that tries to synthesize and explain that. Right. There are also many restatements that touch on areas of federal law, and including federal statutory law. So the restatement of unfair competition has many aspects that touch on federal trademark law. Mm -hmm. It's a little less common for there to be a restatement of an area like copyright where most of it, the source of most of it, is one federal statute. Mm -hmm. And so this will be the first restatement of copyright. It, uh, we started working on it a couple of years ago. There's a head reporter, Chris Sprigman, who's on the faculty at NYU, and then three associate reporters, and I'm one of the associate reporters. Mm -hmm. And then we also have a team of advisors, and there are also other members of the ALI who give us advice on that. And it will be a multi-year project to go okay. through rounds and rounds of feedback and consultation with those advisors. Um, and there's been some skepticism about whether this is necessary in an area that is governed by a federal statute. Mm -hmm. But as people who've studied copyright law know, mm -hmm. the statute leaves, <laughs> it has a very frustrating definition section, frustrating because some of the definitions aren't that clear, and also because it's not at all comprehensive. There are all kinds of terms in the act that are not defined. There are big concepts like the fundamental concept of infringement is not described in detail in the statute. Right. So there's lots of judge-made law in copyright, just as there is in torts. Mm -hmm. And so we think that we can provide a useful service by trying to summarize and clarify, and in some cases, take a position where courts have disagreed to mm -hmm. say that upon reviewing all of the case law, we think that one view is more persuasive than another. And we do have judges among our advisors, and it's been reassuring to us so far that the judges who have grappled with copyright questions have, I think, unanimously said this would be very useful to us. Mm -hmm. So so that's gratifying, and uh, we, we have a good team, and I've been enjoying working on that project. And, and I, as a consumer of copyright law, think that the project will be useful to me. Often in class, when I'm struggling to teach a concept, <laughs> I think, if only we'd finished the restatement section about this, it would be much easier to teach. So right. that, to me, is some confirmation that we're doing something important. Yeah, so why now? What prompted? I know Torts is on, what, its third restatement currently? So what prompted the copyright restatement right now? So that's a good question, and I was not, I was not in fact, a member of the ALI until I was recruited to serve as an associate reporter. Mm -hmm. And so haven't had the experience of seeing new projects launched before mm -hmm. um, to know how this compares. My guess is that some of it might reflect the fact that I think people have been hoping for really many years now that copyright would be fundamentally rewritten in mm -hmm. the way that it was in 1976 mm -hmm. with the most recent major revision of the copyright law, which was years and even decades in the making. But there has not been action in Congress on remaking copyright law or much of anything else in recent years. Right. And so um, I think it seemed like a time where instead there might be progress made not to reform copyright law, but to clarify some things that the statute leaves unclear. Mm -hmm. So I suspect that that is part of the motivation and observation that 
Congress does not seem to be on the verge of clarifying these open questions. Um, and furthermore, copyright is increasingly important, I mm -hmm. think. It governs creativity and information flow, which are increasingly important to our economy. Mm -hmm. And judges are grappling with lots of cases. So I'm sure all of those things were ingredients. Definitely. Interesting. <laughs> What's been your favorite part of working on this project? Um, I have very much enjoyed working with the team of associate reporters, mm -hmm. and we have a good routine for collaboration. We mm -hmm. have weekly phone calls where we get on uh, we get on Skype and we get on Google Docs mm -hmm. and we, we pound away at text that maybe one of us has drafted, but mm -hmm. then we all collaborate on it. And I enjoy that for a reason that I also enjoy my associate dean duties, that they are collaborative. Mm -hmm. Much of what I otherwise do, my responsibilities as a scholar and as a teacher, mm -hmm. of course I interact with my students, which I enjoy a lot, but the preparation for that is solo right. work. Um, and so I like now that my tasks involve a variety of things mm -hmm. and also a variety of work styles, including this collaboration. So it's yeah. been very fortunate. Um, this team of restatement reporters, we really get along both intellectually and uh, personally, so we don't mind, mind spending so much time together. Right, yes, definitely. <laughs> um, so you have currently written a piece, uh, you spoke about your scholarship, for the Houston Law Review entitled uh, Authors versus Owners. Could you tell us a little bit about that piece and sort of what prompted you to write it? Sure. So this was written as part of an event that was hosted by Houston over the summer. The event was not in Houston over the okay, summer. I was, I was feeling uh, as a Texas, <laughs> Texas native, you, you might have wondered about that. Instead, they host the event in Santa Fe, which okay. is a very attractive place yeah. to be in the summer. Yeah. Um, so it was an event where a number of copyright scholars were invited to talk about the issue of authorship. And this was partly motivated, I think, by the anniversary of Feist, which is one of the most important Supreme Court cases in, in all of copyright. Mm -hmm. And it is partly about the question of what is an author to whom rights are granted other, under our constitutional provision for promoting progress in science and the useful arts mm -hmm. by granting exclusive rights to authors and inventors. Um, so Feist was the excuse for having this conference, and a number of copyright scholars were, were there, including um, Terry Fisher, who had been uh, from Harvard Law School, who had been my intellectual property <laughs> professor, so that was a little int intimidating. And my Berkeley Law colleague, Pam Samuelson, was also one of the presenters. So, and the which anniversary was it for Feist? Honestly, um, I'll get it wrong if I say off the top of my head. Yeah. I think it must have been about the 30th. I had to double check as well. It was Feist's 25th anniversary. Okay. Anniversary? Okay. If that's we not wrong, you should edit that part out. So we got to choose what we wanted to write about within mm -hmm. the, the general topic of authorship. And I have been thinking about authorship policy recently, in part because I'm involved in a nonprofit as is Professor Samuelson and a couple of our other colleagues here at Berkeley, called Authors Alliance, mm -hmm. which tries to help authors navigate the world of copyright in the digital age. Mm -hmm. I think in earlier eras, authors most typically had copyrights because that's the way U.S. copyright works following its predecessor, the Statute of Anne. Mm -hmm. The real innovation of the Statute of Anne 
it's known as the first modern copyright act. And the reason for that is that it set the precedent of granting rights to authors mm -hmm. as opposed to publishers or other intermediaries, which had been the situation in England before the Statute of Anne. And our Copyright Act follows that model. However, both of them also make it easy for authors to assign their copyrights to publishers. Mm -hmm. And that has been the longstanding practice right. for most authors because why do authors want to bother with copyright? They, after all, are not typically the entity that is, in fact, making and selling the copies. Instead, they need a relationship with a publisher to do that. Right. So to serve the author's interest in getting paid and getting read and to serve the public's interest in getting books to read, mm -hmm. it was standard and understandable for copyrights to be assigned to publishers. And so it was publishers and their lawyers who had to understand copyright law. Mm -hmm. But of course, these days, authors have lots of alternatives for reaching readers without necessarily relying on publishers as intermediaries. Even authors with publishers might want to take advantage of those opportunities. So books go out of print, mm -hmm. and publishers often lose interest in publishing books that no longer have any commercial, uh, any commercial worth to right. them. They're, they're in it. Presumably to make money. Uh, yeah, so and, it, and understandably, right. they, they have shareholders to report to. So, so that's no knock on the publishers to say that they might lose interest in such a book. And in a day where you had to go to publishers to get copies of books, that might mean that those books then weren't easily available, mm -hmm. except in libraries and other places that still had copies. Mm -hmm. And that was too bad, but a natural consequence of the fact that it wasn't that easy to disseminate and distribute books. So the popular ones were the ones that were still in print. But of course, these days, we could still have easy access to books that are no longer being actively produced mm -hmm. by publishers because we could get access electronically. Right. And even if the publishers don't care about that because the public has lost interest and isn't buying a lot of copies, authors will often be very interested in that and continuing to reach readers and at least have their work available for mm -hmm. people who are interested, mm -hmm. even if they don't have easy access to a library with the book on the shelf. Right. So all of this means that it's more important these days for authors to understand and manage their copyrights so that they don't find themselves in a situation where they would like to keep reaching readers, but they don't have the rights to do that mm -hmm. because although they were initially the copyright owner, they are not anymore. Mm -hmm. And Authors Alliance tries to provide educational materials and other assistance to authors to help them understand copyright better for the purposes of dealing with these issues. And so I've been thinking about that mm -hmm. for quite a while mm -hmm. since we founded this nonprofit a couple years ago and wanted to write about some of these issues for the purposes of this symposium. So that was the impetus for this article, Authors versus Owners, and thinking about potential controversies between authors who want to exercise the potential of the internet for letting them bring back to life their works that um, maybe have gone out of print, but the potential tension they might have with publishers and other copyright owners. Mm -hmm. um, and so I deal with that both in the paper, I deal with both the question of what I call reviving work for mm -hmm. authors. So they want to revive something by getting it back before the public, even if it's gone out of print. There are also potential controversies when authors don't merely want to get their old books back into print, but want to make new works that are based upon those old works. They might want to simply revise what they've done before, so mm -hmm. bring out a new edition that corrects their previous thinking or brings mm -hmm. it up to date. Um, 
or they might want to revisit some of the same themes, genres, styles, and so forth that they have used in their previous work. And both of those activities can implicate copyright. The copyright owner can say that new version is a derivative work based on the old version, mm -hmm. and I'm the copyright owner, and I don't give you permission to make that derivative mm -hmm. work. Or you are using too much expression from the previous work when you make this variation on the same theme, and mm -hmm. so I might object to that as well as a copyright owner. Right. So when, when you're saying, just to clarify, you're saying that the author of the piece has turned over their copyright to the publisher. So when the author then tries to write a work that's similar or too similar to the one that they initially wrote, they might be, quote, infringing themselves because the publisher actually has the copyright. Exactly. Is that correct? Okay. The set of dilemmas I'm worried yeah. about are all dilemmas where an author can find themselves a copyright infringer mm -hmm. with regard to their own previous work. Right. Because although they're the author, they're not the copyright owner anymore. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to ask the last question that we ask all of our interviewees. Talk about what you think the term technology law means. So perhaps this comes from my perspective as someone who does not consider herself a technologist. Mm -hmm. But these days, I think technology law is just law, mm -hmm. and that we have to understand how every aspect of our legal regime has an impact on technology and how technology has an impact on it. And so I hope that's good news for students who are focusing even more than I did on what we call technology law, mm -hmm. that you are preparing yourselves to just be good lawyers in the world that we live in today. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Professor. You're really welcome. My pleasure. It. All right. Well, that is it for this week's episode. We would like to thank the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology, the Berkeley Technology Law Journal, and of course, Professor Van Helling. If you'd like to read her article, Authors vs. Owners, it is available in the Symposium 2016 issue of the Houston Law Review. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.